official podcast of Church at the Well in Burlington, Vermont. For more information about Church at the Well, including gathering time and location, events, and how you can financially support the podcast, please visit us online at wellchurchvt.com. We're spending the first few months of 2020 looking at some conversations that Jesus had with people. And what we find when we read the Gospels, the first four books in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what we find is that Jesus is an amazing conversationalist. He's a master at it. He, he, he knows how to engage people. He knows how to meet people right where they're at. He has the ability to, to go a mile deep and a mile wide in just a few statements. And, and what's most remarkable about conversations Jesus had with people is each conversation is unique and personal. I love that about him. There's one conversation he has with a rich young ruler, and the, the rich young ruler came to him and said, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And, and Jesus converses with him, and he says, oh, you just have to sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And then another conversation he has, which we looked at last Sunday, he has a conversation with two blind men, and, and he asks them this question, what do you want me to do for you? And so they're two very different conversations with very different people. And what you find when you read the Gospels is that Jesus is a master at comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable. He's just genius at it. Sometimes he would afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted in the same conversation with the same words. There'd be a group of people and he would say something and all at once he's comforting those who are afflicted and he's afflicting those who are comfortable. He's just an amazing conversationalist. And the conversation we're going to look at this morning is a conversation that Jesus had with a religious leader. And what you find in the Gospels is his conversations with religious leaders tended to be more afflicting than comforting. Have you guys ever had to have an uncomfortable conversation with someone? Or maybe somebody had an uncomfortable conversation with you? As I was praying this morning, uh, thinking about uncomfortable conversations that Jesus sometimes has with us, I reflected back on a conversation that I had with someone about 18 years ago. And, and, and I'm, also, I'm, I'm ashamed of the conversation. It was one of those conversations where somebody had to, to bring to my attention something that was, I was doing that was really uncomfortable. We're, I was with a group of friends and... and um, we were talking about, I can't remember what particular thing we were talking about, but it was one of those things that you just kind of like would instantly heap kind of question and cynicism on. And, and I said something, I'm so ashamed, ashamed to even say it right now, but I said, that is so retarded. And one of my friends looked at me and she said, why do you use that word? And it, it kind of stunned me. And she said, you know, I have a brother who is severely handicapped and has special needs, and, and he hears that word all the time. And why, why, why do you use that word to talk about this situation? And, and, I, and I thought, whoa, you're right. Little did I know, you know, several years later, my wife and I would have a child with special needs. But I needed to have that uncomfortable conversation with that friend. Right? Because uncomfortable conversations help us to see things that we wouldn't otherwise see. 
And so Jesus not only has encouraging conversations, he also has some uncomfortable conversations with us. And he was really great at these conversations. You know, he, Jesus said this, that I didn't come to condemn the world, but to save it. And so when he spoke to people, it wasn't in a spirit of condemnation. Right? He spoke to people, and some of those were uncomfortable conversations that he had, but it was to bring revelation. And he, didn't, he wasn't afraid to have those. But what makes the conversation kind of unique that we're going to look at this morning is he had it over dinner. Now, they say there's three things you shouldn't talk about over dinner. Do you know what those are? Religion, politics, and what was the third one? Money. Yeah, you're not, they say you're not supposed to talk about religion, politics, or money over dinner because they strike an emotional chord. And so Jesus it gets invited to someone's house for a dinner, and he breaks this rule. And he has a very uncomfortable dinner conversation that really needed to be had. And so I'm going to invite Peter to come, and he's going to read our text for us this morning. It's in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11. And he's going to read verses 37 through 44. Good morning. So uh, I'm one of those people, I don't want or own a smartphone, so we're doing old school today from a Bible, which at my age, which is getting close to 60, means reading glasses. So hold on. (laughs) Okay, so Luke chapter 11, verse 37 to 44. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him, So he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee, noticing that Jesus did not first wash before the meal, was surprised. Then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people. Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But give what is inside the dish to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to the Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, because you are like unmarked graves, which men walk over without knowing it. Okay, so here's the scene for this dinner. Set the table just a little bit of what's happening. Jesus had just finished teaching to the crowds, and a Pharisee approaches him and invites him over for dinner. Now, we're not told the Pharisee's motive for why he's inviting Jesus. We don't know if he's genuinely interested in what Jesus has to say or if this is some form of entrapment. Uh, we, we are told that Jesus isn't the only guest, that this Pharisee who invites him for a meal also invites some other Pharisee friends of his and some scribes who are experts in the law. And as soon as Jesus enters the house, the pot gets stirred because Jesus heads right over to the table without washing his hands before. And, and you say, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, the host is displeased because Jesus is violating hospitality and purity laws. 
by not washing his hands before this meal. And, and you might think, what do you mean hospitality and purity laws? Well, washing your hands before eating, back in Jesus' day, uh, with uh, especially religious leaders, but with uh, Jewish population, washing your, not washing your hands before a meal was... Uh, kind of a, a, something you didn't do because you, you were supposed to wash your hands to demonstrate your commitment to purity. And, and that doesn't really make any sense until you first understand what the pharisaical purity laws were all about. So the Pharisees were a sect of religious leaders who took it upon themselves to purify the nation spiritually of their sin. And so it was a group of religious leaders who felt they believed this, that Messiah wouldn't come to rescue them from, from Roman oppression and rule until the nation was purified and purged from their sin. And so the Pharisees were a sect of religious leaders that took it upon themselves to do that. They said the only way God's going to come and free us from Roman rule and Roman oppression is if we first clean up our act. And so we are going to, to make sure that happens. And so the Pharisees... Um, had a system of 613 laws that went way beyond the Mosaic law, and they viewed these laws as the pathway to their salvation, that if they could somehow get the nation to be pure and to to pursue purity, and and that that Messiah would finally come. And this this kind of mirrors a, a false narrative that many of us have today, a false theology that a lot of us have today, that we have to get our lives in order before we pursue God. Um, The first five and a half years that I pastored here and planted this church, the first five and a half years, I was bivocational and worked other jobs. And I remember one time being at one of those jobs, and a coworker and a friend came up to me and, and said, Adam, I have every intention of attending your church one day, but I've got to get my life straightened out first. And I thought that kind of curious. I said, what do you mean by that? He's like, well, I've got some, like, sin and stuff in my life that I've got to like figure, I've got to straighten that out first, then I'll come to church, because I don't want God to strike me down. And as soon as I get that done, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come. And I had to tell him, whoa, 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 you, that's not how Jesus works. You got it backwards. See, and I showed him how the scripture says that it's by grace through faith that we're saved, not by works, not by something that we do. In other words, we don't have to get everything straightened out first. We'd simply just trust in Jesus and his righteousness, like we sang this morning in that hymn, right? We trust his righteousness. And, and I told him, if, if you do end up coming to our church, you're going to be really disappointed because none of us have our act together, including me and I'm the pastor. So you're going to be really let down once you figure all this out and you straighten your life out and you come. You're going to be like, wow. The truth is, we can't straighten our lives out. Right? We're totally dependent on God and his righteousness on Jesus. And so Jesus here, by not washing his hands, is challenging a worldview and a theology. He knows what the Pharisees are all about. And so when he doesn't wash his hands and he goes and sits at that table, he's challenging their idea, their philosophy, their theology, their worldview, that, that it's up to us to straighten everything out. And once we straighten everybody out, the Messiah will come, and little did they know, the Messiah was right there having dinner with him. And so Jesus sets the table for an uncomfortable conversation that needs to be had, and he tells his host this. 
You clean the outside of these dishes, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. Wow. Can you, you imagine yourself at a dinner? You invite someone over, and they sit down, and they sit, and you're ready to have dinner, and they look at your plates, and they say, Wow, your dishes are clean, but you're full of wickedness inside. <laughs> what, what, what would that feel like? Talk about shock and awe. Like they just sit down, Oh, your dishes are really nice, but you're greedy. And this is just the appetizer. The dinner hasn't even happened yet. Jesus is just warming up, and he serves up this six-course meal for them. Jesus serves up this six-course meal. He has six warnings for them. Uh, They're they're called woes, and a woe is an expression of concern, grief, or denouncement. And and it sounds really like a good woe to you, right? That'll catch your attention. And so he has these six woes, and the first three are directed toward this Pharisee and his Pharisee friends who are at the lunch. Verse 42, woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the later without leaving the former undone. He tells the Pharisees, you're missing the point You give a tenth of your little garden herbs, but you look for loopholes to avoid God's justice. See, tithing, Jesus is teaching them something here. Tithing is is about caring about God's mission in the world. It's about being generous and trusting God and saying, no, I care about God's mission in the world of justice and love, and I'm going to contribute to that. And so these Pharisees had part of it down. They were even taking their little garden herbs, right, and chopping them up. Okay, let's make sure we give a tenth, and we'll put it in the the joy box at synagogue. And Jesus says, yeah, you're doing all that, but you're missing the whole point. You're not caring about God's mission. You're not caring about justice. Now, one of the difficulties with a passage like this is it's tricky for us to read unless we contextualize it because I'm guessing none of us here give mint and rue. Like if I ever find mint and rue in the joy box, I'm going to be very alarmed. <laughs> like what is this doing here? None of, us, none of us do that. And so we can read something like this and we can skip over the hard work of contextualizing it. Like we read it, and we're like, okay, they didn't give mint, they were giving mint and rue, but Jesus challenged and, and we can understand conceptually what this passage is saying, but we have to stop and, and not skip over the work of, of contextualizing it so we can apply it. So the question we have to ask ourselves as followers of Jesus is, is what would this conversation look like if Jesus had it with us today? In this room, maybe he'd challenge our practice and motivation for giving. Maybe he'd say something like, "Hey, I see you're giving. I see you're giving at church and, and, and through the church center wrap and in the joy box. Um, but do you really care about God's mission, or are you just trying to alleviate guilt?" what's your motivation for giving, he might say. Are you giving because, you know, you just feel like you should and other people do and there was a financial slide and you haven't given in a while and, oh, geez, I better put, put it in there. Or do you really care about God's mission? Or do you just do it as a way to kind of excuse yourself from rolling up your sleeves and diving into justice, right? There's all kinds of motivations we have for giving, which is why we even have a joy box because Corinthians tells us when you give to the Lord, don't give under compulsion, Give joyfully, right? And so Jesus is challenging them. 
Let's look at the next warning he gives, verse 43. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings to the marketplaces. So you have to understand that the synagogue back in Jesus' day had a front row seats that faced the audience. It was kind of like a little semicircle. And those seats were reserved for officials and notable guests. And Jesus tells the people at this dinner party, you love those seats. In other words, you love to be the center of attention. And I can imagine Jesus really like kind of just making things uncomfortable and and implying that, you know, when you got into this thing, maybe you did have a desire to see the Messiah come, to see God come, but now it's turned into something else. Now it's, for you, it's about position and prestige and power. See, it's not enough for us just, just to interpret what Jesus is saying. We also have to kind of move past understanding it conceptually and seeing What does that mean for us? Because we don't have um, special seats here at Church at the Well. (laughs) The theater seats are nice, though, right? A cup holder, recline a little bit. But we don't have any special ones. (laughs) So so how could Jesus have the same conversation with us? Well, maybe there's ways that we make our service to God more about us than about him. Right? Because that's what he's really getting about getting about here with these Pharisees. Yeah, you're servicing the people as these religious leaders, and you might have gotten in it for the right reasons, but really now you've made it all about prestige and position. And so translate that to our modern day. We have no special seats, but maybe Jesus has had a conversation with us about our service to God becoming more about us than about him. Well, then all of a sudden, contextualizing it like that, it adds a gravity to it, doesn't it? Let's look at the next woe. Verse 44. Woe to you, because you are like unmarked graves, which people walk over without knowing it. Now, this particular warning here requires a little bit of interpretation. Uh, According to the law in Numbers 19, anyone who touched or walked over an unmarked grave would be ceremonially unclean for seven days. And so one of the things the Pharisees did is whenever somebody died in their community, they would make sure that a family member, a living family member, would whitewash that tomb. And that way, people could avoid it, right? It would stick out. And so, because remember, the Pharisees were all about purity. Let's purify the nation so the Messiah comes. And so they were all really, it was really important to them to, to keep this law. And Jesus comes to the dinner and he says, oh, by the way, you guys are unmarked tombs. People come in contact with you and they're defiled by your values, by your ideals, by your theology. And and you can imagine the insult (laughs) this is to them because they're all about purity and Jesus saying, you're you're like the unmarked tomb. The thing you set out to do, you do the opposite of. That's uncomfortable. (laughs) It's so uncomfortable that one of the scribes at at the meal stands up and says, Jesus, you insult us too when you say these things. And so what does Jesus do? He does Jesus stuff. He turns to the scribes and he goes, I got three woes for you too. And he starts out in in, in verse 46, Jesus replied, and you experts in the law, woe to you. Because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry. 
and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Jesus is telling these expert teachers in the law, the law was given to point people to God and to get us to depend on him and and, and his grace. But instead of helping people walk in God's way, you're making it so people can't even walk at all. You're burdening them down. Here's a question that we could ask ourselves. Why do we do that as Christians? Why do we as Christians take it upon ourselves to to convict everybody and condemn the world? The scripture tells us that it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict of sin. And, And scripture also tells us that it's God's kindness that leads to repentance. Yet sometimes as Christians, when, when we approach repentance, when we talk about repentance with people, it's not very kind. And only God can convict someone of sin. Now, we're invited to preach, to proclaim the truth in love and to bear witness, but it's not our job to convict people of sin. That's the Holy Spirit's job. Our job is to love and to help people respond when they respond to God's loving conviction to come alongside of them. And so Jesus is saying to the scribe, you guys are teachers, experts of the law. Instead of helping, pointing people to God and, and making it accessible, you're, you're loading them down so they can't even walk at all. Wow, that's strong. Look at the next one, verse 47. Woe to you, because you build tombs for the prophets, and it was your ancestors who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets, and you built their tombs. Now, a prophet's job is what? When a nation or a people, the nation of Israel specifically in the Old Testament, when they were no longer hearing God or listening to God, God would send a prophet to give a message to them. And, and Jesus tells these Pharisees, you build fancy tombs for the prophets, but it was your ancestors who killed them. And he's essentially telling these Pharisees that just like your ancestors, you'll silence and kill God's messengers if you don't like what they have to say too. And after this conversation, we're told by Luke that they started opposing Jesus fiercely. After this uncomfortable conversation, they started to oppose him fiercely and look for a way to trick him and trap him and get rid of him, just like what he said in this woe. Now, again... We have to contextualize this for us because it's unlikely that any of us have built tombs for prophets that our ancestors killed. So how might Jesus be using this conversation to challenge attitudes we have that are similar to what he's addressing here? Because what he's really addressing is God sent messengers to you, but you weren't willing to listen to God's message through other people. And I think sometimes, uh, you know, we can respond to God speaking into our lives through other people as long as they don't get into our business and it hits a nerve, right? If they do look out, we'll assassinate their character, we'll shut them up, we will silence them somehow, even if we get vicious. See, that's the thing Jesus is talking about. And I wonder how Jesus would talk to us about that. Well, let's look at this last quote. There's one more, verse 52. Woe to you experts in the law, because you've taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you've hindered those who are entering. He says to the scribes, these these 
experts in the law, these teachers of the law, your job is to pull back the veil and make God's word accessible. But you've done the opposite. You've locked the door and you hid the key. And this is a really good warning for those of us who teach and preach, right? Are we making it hard for people to engage with the scripture? Do we make scripture feel inaccessible by making it seem overly complicated? Do we want to feel indispensable as teachers and preachers? Jesus warns these these scribes, these experts of the law, not only are you not approaching the scriptures right, but you're taking the key and you're hiding it. Man, there's a lot. These are some uncomfortable conversations, right? You thought Jesus was all love, encouraging, but sometimes... Sometimes, just like my story earlier, sometimes an uncomfortable conversation is the loving thing to do, right? Because it makes us aware of, of things that we need to become aware of. So let's close this by stepping back and taking, take a, a quick kind of panoramic view of this dinner conversation and see um, what we can learn from it. I think there's two things. One, Jesus isn't afraid to have uncomfortable conversations with us. Because he has our best interest at heart, and because he didn't come to condemn us, he came to save us. Right? So that's the first takeaway when I read this passage, like, wow, Jesus is not afraid to, to have uncomfortable conversations with us and call us out in love. The second thing that I think we learn from this passage is that until, until we're willing to have uncomfortable conversations with Jesus and with the Holy Spirit will never be formed into his image and experience the abundant life that he has for us. See, here's, here's the thing. Most of us aren't good at being challenged, even if it's done in, a, in the context of love, right? It's just uncomfortable. When God challenges us, when our spouse challenges us, when coworkers challenge us, in the, in the, in, and sometimes it's done not in the context of love, and that's really hard, but even when it's, when it's Done in the context of love, sometimes it's really hard, right, to be challenged. But, but that's how we grow. Do you guys remember when you were kids and you had growing pains? You woke up in the middle of the night and your legs were just screaming. They hurt so bad. Your arms, your shoulders, it hurt so much. But you knew you were growing. Your bones were growing. That's why it hurt. See, growth happens when we're uncomfortable. Discomfort is, um, is where we grow the most. And if we avoid spiritual discomfort, then we'll never grow in our faith. See, as Christians, it, <laughs> I put my, I'm speaking to myself today too, right? Um, we try to find, as Christians, we try to find the easiest route to follow Jesus. I want to find the church that like, doesn't say anything difficult, or challenge me. I want to find friends who are just always supportive, <laughs> never challenge me. We just look for those paths, those avenues. It's our human nature. But until we, we approach faith, our faith in Jesus, until we approach it and say, you know what, God, I probably have some stuff that I don't see that I need you to have some uncomfortable conversations with me about. And so if I'm reading scripture, your word, or if I'm praying, or if I'm talking to friends, and they point out something, I want to be able to listen. I want to be able to hear what you're saying. 
Because I understand you're trying to grow me. You're not trying to condemn me. You're, you're trying to save me, to grow me. And so um, I wonder if, if there's a few people here who right now you're avoiding an uncomfortable conversation with Jesus. He's trying to have it with you, but you're just kind of like, <laughs> I don't want to have that. I do this with Jesus. Right? The Holy Spirit will like, tell me something. I'll be reading the scripture, and I'll be convicted of something, or I'll be praying, and, and I hear this still, small kind of voice in my head, like God telling me something. Or sometimes it's through my wife. <laughs> she tells me I'm being a jerk. And like 99, no, all the time I am. She's right. And other people in my life. Right? It happens to me all the time, and I, I, I do. I resist that because it's just uncomfortable. But I want to learn how to have more of those conversations. Don't you? Don't you want to grow in, in your faith in God? And so what I want to do to close is just to pray for us all um, that God would give us the, the kind of the, the steadfast fortitude and the courage that we need to just have these conversations with Jesus. The ones that are just really uncomfortable and just listen to what he has to say to us. So can I pray that for us? Okay, I'm going to pray it anyway. Nobody wants that prayer, but I'm going to pray that for us anyway. (laughs) Oh, Lord, I'll be the first to admit that um, I do not like uncomfortable conversations. I just reflect back on uncomfortable conversations I've had with you, God, uncomfortable conversations you've had with me, uncomfortable conversations friends have had with me. Uh, They're not pleasant. But, Lord, I grew through all of those. So, Lord, I ask for me and for all my friends that if the Holy Spirit, if Jesus is having conversations with us that cause us to be uncomfortable, that we will have the courage and um, the ability to step into those and to listen. God, don't make us like the Pharisees and the scribes that just kind of deflect it and defend ourselves, but give us an opportunity to, to practice humility and to listen what it is you're speaking to us and challenging us in. Lord, we thank you for the loving conviction of the Holy Spirit Help us to respond really well to that. We can't do that on our own. Lord, we promise to, to respond as best as we can in faith, and um, we'll give you every bit of praise, glory, and honor. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Why don't we stand together? We'll sing one more song. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Church at the Well is a community reintroducing Jesus in Vermont through worship, service, creativity, and community.